All happy families are alike. So says Tolstoy, the opening of Anna Karenina. He means it's better when families are unhappy and so they throw themselves under trains and stuff like that. Then you have something to talk about. This is Hearing Voices, the best of public radio, from NPR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Larry Massett. Today we're talking about all happy families or not. You can't always tell the difference. Families that look happy from the outside may not be so cheery on the inside, and vice versa, it's a mystery. We begin with a family whose life was built around an unmentionable secret. The story of Lynn and Doug Nadeau, told by their friend Eric Winnick. On April 23, 2004, Doug Nadeau was running on the beach when he stopped breathing and collapsed. At the hospital, when doctors removed his clothes, they found women's underwear and a series of foam pads fastened to Doug's hips and chest. The story of how those pads got there and how Doug died is one I used to think of as a tragedy. But now I'm not so sure. Now I think it's a love story. I grew up in Marblehead, Massachusetts, a classic old New England town known for its spectacular harbor and yacht clubs. We had our share of remarkable families, but the one I remember best were the Nadeaus. I'd met the son when I was in the sixth grade and over time got to know his parents as well. Lynn was an award-winning math teacher and activist, and Doug was a prominent Boston attorney with degrees from Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. The Nadeaus, they were rock stars. Doug, I felt, had an inner plan about how to live his life. He had decided what he wanted. Turned out I fit into it. He had decided he wanted to be a homeowner, have children, be a successful lawyer. And I was just part of the plan. And I agreed to go along with it because I didn't have a plan. And I had signed up for the program. Doug and Lynn married in 1963. And within four years, they had two sons, Ted and Greg. In 68, they moved to Marblehead where, from all accounts, Doug was a model citizen, husband, and dad. To the casual observer, this was a charmed family living a charmed life, and no year was better for them than 1985. It seemed as if it was the fruition of everything that we had worked toward. We were 45 years old. Our two sons had a good childhood and youth. Doug's career was doing wonderfully. He was an international lawyer traveling all around the world. And I was about to change. I was poised to change high school mathematics in the country. We were in great shape. We ran three miles a morning every day on the beach at 5.30 before we went off for work. And our lives were really perfect. After the best year of our lives, that spring, our younger son had gone away to college, and we took a trip with a group of lawyers to China, Japan, and Korea. And while we were there, Doug contracted a virus. When we returned, we couldn't figure out why he was always tired, and then he began showing neurological symptoms, which were eye blinking, head twisting, facial grimacing eyes being plastered shut, and what Doug called the grayness of his personal winter came down upon us, and ultimately it was diagnosed as a Parkinsonian-like illness. Doug's condition was caused by a lack of dopamine, a chemical that under normal circumstances is manufactured by your brain. For various reasons, Doug's brain couldn't make dopamine, so the doctors loaded him up with medicine. But the drugs didn't last, and at night Doug would lose his mobility and end up confined to his bed, listening to classical music, Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, anything to soothe his restless mind. Meanwhile, things at work were about to get a whole lot worse. His partners in the law firm closed the door so that clients would not see this grimacing, peculiar, head-twisting person. 
And eventually, one day, he went to work, and they had taken his name. He was an equal partner with the other two, but they had taken his name off the front door and said that they had come to an end of their way. So Doug had to get another job with another law firm, eating crackers, which seemed to be the only thing that kept his eyes open. So he would chew, and that would somehow or another keep his eyes open. He struggled and struggled. And in retrospect, I see him clinging to that old self, the self that he had been all his life and worked toward, and having that self taken away from him bit by bit. In 1995, it looked as if he was going to be completely, he called himself a party vegetable. That is, he was going to be just like a plant in the corner somewhere. When we learned about a certain surgery called a pallidotomy, which he had in March of 95, that pallidotomy was a miracle. And after that pallidotomy, there was such hope. We went to Sicily and walked from the center of Sicily to the coast with a group of English hikers, and he, Doug, led the way. He thought he would get his life back again. In order to tell the next part of the story, I have to rewind back a bit to 1963. Lynn and Doug have just married and are living in Cambridge. It's late one night, and Doug comes to Lynn with a question. I was eight months pregnant. It was dark in our bedroom when he said to me Lynn did you ever wonder what it would be like to be someone else and maybe that doesn't sound like a complicated sentence to you listening to it now but to me the way that he said it struck fear in my heart what did he mean and then he told me that he had a penchant for cross-dressing and that he wondered what it would be like to be a woman instead of a man. And I was stunned, scared, disgusted, and uh, confused. After all, I was going to have a baby in a month. And um, that's when he told me. Doug explained to me that he would cross-dress when under stress sort of a release at the time, sexual, that is when he was young. And when he went on trips to business trips and so forth, he would pack women's clothes with him. And if he were in a hotel by himself on a business trip, he would cross-dress. And I was disapproving, disgusted, all those various things. But I do remember once I thought, oh, come on, Lynn, be open-minded. Entertain the thought, who would you be, Lynn, if you had been born male? It was sort of the philosophical thought of, does gender create the being that we are? I mean, it's a question that people ask. Okay, back to 1995. Lynn's been living with this secret for more than 30 years. Doug has this radical procedure designed to burn away neurons that aren't letting his medicine work. And initially, it's a success. But there's a catch. To tell you about that, here's Doug himself, speaking in the late 90s as part of a local cable documentary. Now, I learned after the operation that the operation also has an additional effect, which is to, which is to reduce the inhibitory neurons that deal with, with social conduct rather than just muscles. Mm-hmm. So that there's a, there's a definite effect, which has just recently been described to me as, as the effect of disinhibition. People who have, have had pallidotomy operations become less inhibited or disinhibited as a result of the operations. I'm one of four people who are being specially studied by the neurologists because each of the four of us have, have engaged in, in activities since the pallidotomy that we didn't do beforehand, which have created some issues in terms of our families or our friends or something like that. What he means by disinhibition is that he's decided to live the rest of his life as a woman. Was this really a consequence of his brain operation? We may never know. The fact is, it was shortly thereafter that Doug began turning himself 
into Donna. I guess he felt that he had finished, he had finished his job as a father who needed to keep up an image and decided to let them know the real him. I can't say that it went very well. They were not pleased to learn this about their father. They were not pleased to know that their father had kept a secret from them, something that had mattered so much, and they didn't value that particular secret. Cross-dressing, what a stupid thing to want to do. And I, I think it was hard for them to see their perfect father and their image of who he was so, so changed. Doug, meanwhile, was going full tilt on the new identity. He joined several transgender groups and began crafting female body parts out of foam pads so he'd look more womanly. Over time, he turned the basement into a workshop of sorts, which Greg said looked like something out of Silence of the Lambs. Greg, I think, felt that his father, he felt that his Donna father had, was killing his Doug father, and I felt that way too, of course. I entertained the thought, how long can I go on in this peculiar crazy life. I felt like I was living in a loony bin. When could we touch again and be connected? And those times became more and more infrequent so that at the end of his life, I hardly felt that we connected at all. The last time I saw Doug Nadeau, he was with Lynn at the Marblehead Festival of Arts in summer 2003. He wore a dress, and people weren't looking with compassion. Sensing this, I walked up to Doug and shook his hand. The words that came out of my mouth were not what I would have said had I thought about it in advance. They came from a good place, but they probably weren't what Doug wanted to hear. I said, how are you, my boy? It still hurts to think about it. I truly, truly respected his desire to be who he wanted to be. So when I went with him to places and I would meet strangers, I learned to say, hello, my name is Lynn. This is my husband. He has Parkinson's, so it's hard for him to talk, and he likes to be called Donna. As hard as life was, when I think, when people say to me, oh, Lynn, now that Doug's gone and he was really difficult in the last 18 years, you could date. I would never be interested in being with anybody else. Is that strange? It's strange for me. Doug was my, um, they use the word beshared. He was my beloved person. As impossible and difficult as he was, that's who he was for me. You're listening to All Happy Families on Hearing Voices. The story of Lynn and Doug Nadeau was produced by Eric Winnick with help from myself, Larry Massett, and Jay Allison at transom.org. Next, the story of Steve Fugit, as told by himself. It begins back in 1999 when he decided to walk the Appalachian Trail. I was reading a magazine and read about the Appalachian Trail. I'd never even heard of it. I didn't know what it was. I read about it, and I said, hey, I can do this. And I thought, wow, I'll do this trail. And uh, while I'm doing it, my son can run my business. And uh, I said, hey, why don't you run this for me, and I'll go hike this trail. It'll be a blast. And he said, this is great. We'll do it. Well, I took off. I got on the Appalachian Trail. I'd gone uh, approximately 1,140 miles. I was at Blue Mountain Summit, Pennsylvania, and they told me I had an uh, emergency phone call to make. I made the emergency phone call. My son had gone down to the beach, and he had taken my 38 and stuck it in his mouth, and he ended both our lives. When I got on that phone, and they told me that my son was gone, I shot back from that telephone, 10, maybe 12, 15 feet. 
I, I could not stop screaming. The death of your child is like, it's not supposed to happen. It's as if someone carved your heart out of your body with an axe while you are yet breathing. There is no way to prepare for it. There is nothing else compared to it. We are not prepared for this in any way. So I uh, went home and I, I buried my boy. And uh, my daughter was, uh, I was, we were trying to comfort each other only hours after we had put my boy in the ground. And uh, she looked up at me all of a sudden and she said, Damn you, why couldn't you have given Stevie your love for life? I didn't know I had a love for life, honey. Of course you do. And she was yelling at me and she said, Go ask your friends. Go on, go ask them. And I, I did what she said a, a few weeks later, and I went around and embarrassed as I was. I asked three different friends, you know, hey, you think I love life? Felt pretty goofy, but anyway, I asked them, and they they all just as awkwardly <laughs> answered me and said, basically, yes, you do. So I uh, I went out, and I finished the Appalachian Trail. I went back to the exact spot where I stopped and I walked the remaining 900 and some miles and I screamed and I cried. I usually didn't stay in the shelters on the trail but I saw in the book one they called the hexagonal. It was only a year old I believe and it was shaped like a hexagon. Beautiful, big thing and just beautiful. Just I think uh, close to the Vermont-New Hampshire line, inside of New Hampshire. And uh, I had prepared my meal. It was evening, 6.30, 7 o'clock. I just got to thinking about my little boy, and I just started screaming as loud as I could, and just crying and letting it rip, and just missing him so much. All of a sudden, I, I realized I wasn't alone. I was being joined. There was something else crying with me, and... Uh, and I realized it was the coyotes. The more I yelled and the louder I got, the louder they got and the more they howled. And then I heard the little ones. They must have come home with the meal and the little ones were out to greet them. They'd come home from the hunt. And all of a sudden I heard them little yelps and I could I could feel the presence of my little one. It, it was one of the most peaceful feelings as I stopped yelling, they stopped yelling. I heard a couple little yelps, and that was it. I was very calm and relaxed. I went to sleep. I, I laid there like that and just dozed off. I, I, I felt at peace. able to grieve out there very much and uh, it got into me I, I just wanted to do it again so I spoke to my daughter about it and uh, she said yes well uh, I'll help you orchestrate this and so I decided to walk around the United States I walked completely around the United States. I decided to carry a sign. I mean, you know, I was a businessman. Maybe you'd call me a conservative businessman. I don't know. But I certainly wasn't into sticking a large sign over my head and walking. But uh, I came up with a sign, Love Life. Love Life. When I put that sign, Love Life, over my head, I became a magnet, particularly to young people. The first time it happened, I'd been out on the road maybe three weeks, and this young man was on uh, operating a road grader, 
along the highway, part of a construction crew. I, I noticed as I was walking, he kept looking at me, and he pulled a grater right up beside me, and, and he got out of the grater, and he, and he had this look in his eyes, this desperation. He he said, hey, I said, yes. He said, are you a man of God? Why not? Yeah. From what I saw in his face, I became what he wanted me to be. And he immediately started crying. He started pouring his heart out to me about him and his wife getting a divorce. And then he asked me if he if I would pray with him. And I did. New to me, that's what he wanted. That's what I gave him. And he was satisfied. He really liked what I had told him. I can't remember what I told him. I just know that it was a good meeting. And then it took off from there. People would see that love life sign. And if they were hurting I guess they were surmising, hey, love life. This guy must know something about loving life. Maybe he can help me. I tell my story a lot, but I still only tell it when I feel it. The thing is about telling my story, every time I tell it, it hurts. It hurts. Listening to all happy families on hearing voices. We'll be right back with the rest of Steve Fugit's story. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. Welcome back to All Happy Families on Hearing Voices. We're listening to Steve Fuga tell us how he became a sort of wandering madman roaming the roads of America with a love-life sign stuck over his middle-aged head. Sad story, but the truth is, wandering around the country talking to strangers isn't all bad. Beats the heck out of retiring. It is a terrific adventure. A guy uh, stopped his truck, and he says, Love life, huh? I said, Yeah, love life. And he said, man, I can't love life. I want to take my life. And he starts crying. So I immediately said, no, you don't. You don't want to take your life. You're not going to take your life. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I am. I, I just don't want to live anymore. My wife left me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He went on and on. And uh, I said, really? I said, let me tell you why you're not going to take your own life. Let me tell you who I am. You have no idea who you just stopped to talk to. You're talking about taking your own life? I'm the expert on that. And his eyes got really big. I told him I lost my son to suicide, and this is why I walk. I said, well, you think this is a coincidence? This is an accident? You stop and talk to the guy that's walking around, you know, trying to help people not commit suicide? I stopped in this little store. I went in, and it purchased me uh, a couple hot dogs. And I went out, and I set up against the building and was eating my hot dogs. 
and this truck pulled up, and it was an old, beat-up, old black Ford pickup truck, and there was a big Indian in it, big Shoshone Indian. He was like well over six foot, and he got out of the truck, and he was looped. He was loaded. He'd had way too much to drink. There was a woman driving, and he gets out, and my cart and my sign and everything's right there for the whole world to see my love life sign. And he comes up and he stumbles up to me and he says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm walking. And he said, where are you walking to? And I said, I'm walking across the United States. Why? Because I've never done it before. But why? Why are you doing it? And I was aggravated with him and I said, God told me to do it like that. I just wanted to get rid of him. And he said, no sh-. And I said, no sh-. And he said, I didn't know God talked to you white boys. And I said, he talks to me. And he turns and looks at his whoever, the woman driving a truck, and he said, hey, honey, God told this guy to walk across America, and by God, he's doing it. And I'm sitting there, and I'm looking up at him, and he goes, by God, I'm going to buy you a beer. And I said, Good, by God, I'll drink it. And he goes in, and he gets the the beer, and I was standing up by then. And he hands me the beer, and he goes, Here, by God, I'm going to give you a hug. (laughs) And he gave me a hug. And when he left, I felt wonderful. I drank the beer, and I said, All I needed, hell, all I needed was a hug and a beer. Guy on a motorcycle, he had one of those new... V-Rods, Harleys. And so I was kind of envious of him walking down the road. And I heard him turn around. He turned around and came back. And he pulls right up beside me, shuts his beautiful motorcycle off. And he says, I want to talk about that. And I'm like, what? And he goes, I love life, son. He goes, I hate life. And I said, no, you don't. He said, "I, I hate life. I said, no, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you do not hate life. Yes, I do, he said. No, you don't, I said. And pretty soon it was this. Nope, yep, yeah, you do. Nope, nope, yep, nope, yep, nope, yep. Nope, yep, yeah, you do. Nope, nope, yep, nope, yep, nope, yep. I've stepped out of a convenience store. This guy steps up to me. Was, he told me he was 62 years old. And he's seen my sign laying up against the building. This man was in a like a Mercedes, a BMW. He was dressed very nice. And, you know, he was prosperous. And uh, he asked me about my sign. And I told him. And I told him my son took his own life. The guy says, my father killed himself when I was 12. He started crying 50 years before. It still got him. The guilt, the, you know, the hurt. Why would my father do that to me? What did I do to make him do that? Guy was 62 years old, a together guy, and he's standing at the doorway of a convenience store crying. You don't have the right to take your own life. You don't have the right to take your own life because it doesn't belong just to you. You're listening to All Happy Families on Hearing Voices. I remember I started seeing all kinds of cigarette packs, and I remember that my ex-girlfriend, she smoked Marlboro, and she used to save these the things on the side, coupons. And she'd get all kinds of good stuff with them and she'd send them off, you know. Anyway, I started picking them up. I thought, why not do a kind of a service, you know, pick up some trash. And uh, I started picking them up from Colorado all the way to Cape Henlope in Delaware. And uh, I had started using them for a pillow. I made a great pillow. I had like a one-gallon Ziploc bag full of them. And when I got back, I looked up my ex-girlfriend, and uh, she cashed them in, and she got two of almost everything in the catalog. She got us two really nice Swiss Army watches and big, nice wooden dartboard sets and 
It was pretty cool. I got all kinds of stuff. Got her boyfriend a cowboy hat. Stetson, it didn't fit him, though. <laughs> this monastery somewhere in New York. I forget the name of it now. I've read that these monks at this monastery let uh, the thru-hikers stay and gave them a meal and uh, made them comfortable for the night. And so I was cold, man. I was in a miserable rain. And it's like I couldn't wait to do it, man. I was just thrilled, you know. Well, I got up there, and it was, there was all these statues of some saint, you know, all over the place. And I'm looking around trying to find out where the hell is this whatever they call it, the barracks, where they put up the thru-hikers for the meal, right? And so walking down this little cobblestone path next to some saint was this nun, and she was a little squatty, sweet-looking little thing. And what do they call that thing, a habit? You know, she she had on, and she had one tooth in her head. She, I swear she had to be in her 90s. She was so old, and she was there like retirement or something. She was the sweetest thing you ever seen. And I said, excuse me, sister, could you tell me, please, where they put the thru-hikers up? And she said, oh, they don't do that anymore. And I'm going, oh, you know? She said, you know, the monks have taken an oath to poverty. And I said, Really? And she said, really? And I said, well, you know what? If they really want to experience poverty, they can go down there and pitch their tent down there in the ball field like I'm going to have to and eat them freaking ramen noodles and, and try to make a fire out of that wet shit on the ground down there. And I said, you know, I'll bet you they would be thrilled to swap places with me. I'll go up there and eat a nice hot meal, sleep in a nice comfortable bed and wake up and eat a warm breakfast and they can lay down there in that poverty. And I said, it's a great deal. She started laughing so hard. I can still see that one, two shining. She was slapping her legs, and we both were laughing so hard. And there we were in the drizzling rain. We're just cracking up, wearing her one tooth. And and I went down there, and I went to bed thinking of them monks up there in all that friggin' poverty. <laughs> I was down there sleeping on the ground. What's the name of that town? Just the next good-sized town past Dodge City. Anyway, minister there at a Church of God church saw me. He asked me uh, if I would speak, and I said, sure. So I I spoke, and uh, they took up what they called a love offering for me. And there were about, I don't know, 40-some people, maybe 50 and they gave me $43, and hey, I needed it. But there was an Eagle's Lodge next door, and I went into that a couple hours later. And believe it or not, I don't know how it happened, but me and the three people I was talking to, we were talking about God, whether there was really a God or not. And those three people gave me $75. So I think that the churches, I would recommend all of them, they need to put bars in them. Because people get real loose. They give the money. Hell, three people gave me 75 and 50 people gave me $43. Do the math. They need a bar. <laughs> right? I walked completely around the United States and I uh, was three weeks from finishing, and my daughter was all excited. I just spoke to my daughter, and she had decided to uh, come down and meet me. We were really anxious about seeing each other, and I wanted to see my grandbaby, my little granddaughter. I was in Daytona Beach, Florida. They had uh, done an interview for the local paper, and it was a picture of me and my love life sign and lots of people were coming by and waving and you know honking their horns and i i just eat that up i just love it it makes such a great day anyway i'm waving back at everybody and my cell phone rings and and i can see that it's my sister you know and i go hey sis how are you doing 
my sister says, uh, I don't want to be the one to tell you this. And I go, oh, God, no, it's mom, isn't it? We've lost our, our 86-year-old mother. My sister said, no, it's your little girl. Your baby girl is gone. And uh, I died just like I did before. That's like deja vu. Same scenario. Here I am again. And my little girl's gone. My daughter's death is being ruled as a accidental drug overdose. Ah, I used to call her one more time Shelly, and she just, she, uh, she left us. And it's a beautiful day. It's like 10.30, 11 o'clock in the morning. People were still honking a horn and waving. And uh, I, so I just stand there and I just start screaming and screaming. The only difference was that I was experienced. And so I feel that both of my babies stopped loving life just long enough to do something stupid. Something self-centered, because that's what it is. As much as I love them, as much as I don't want to say anything bad about either one of my babies, that's what they did. And uh, I don't want... I don't... Let's see, I want to do everything that I can do to prevent... Any other, anyone, young, old, anyone, particularly the young, I want to do what I can to keep them loving life, that they don't stop loving life long enough to do that selfish thing, that self-centered, stupid thing. And so that's what I'm trying to get across. That's my message. You have to love life. I want them all to live, and I want them to love life. I don't want them to do what my two babies did. Love Life, a message from Steve Fugit was recorded by Mark Baldwin and produced by myself, Larry Massett. I don't know where Steve is right this minute, but usually when he gets to a town, he stops by the public library, logs onto the computer, and updates his website. You can check out his journal at trailtherapy.org.
You're listening to Hearing Voices. So, do you have a name for me? For you? Mm-hmm. No, I never use a name other than you. Mm-hmm. Do you need a name for me? No. Oh. It's, a, it's been a bit of a beautiful, beautiful um, situation. It's uh, seeing you, feeling you, hearing you, and all that sort of thing. Is a delight. Doesn't wouldn't have to be anything else. Every now and then, you'll ask me if I'm married. Yeah, well, I I, I always wondered if you get had gotten married. Mm-hmm. And I, I did, I did get married. Yeah. And then my wife and I separated. Yeah. And now. This is my partner. This is my husband, Bob. Oh. Uh-huh. Huh? Got a ring. Wedding rings. Oh, Wedding for rings. goodness sakes. <laughs> so he's your son-in-law. So that's my friend. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. You're related to him. <laughs> Am I related to him? Yeah. You are. Yeah, you're related to him as well. <laughs> yeah. He's your son. Yeah, Gregory he, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's as good as anything. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. What do you like? Well, I want to talk about you. I want to talk about you. I want to know what it's like to be old. I don't mind being old, really. As long as I'm able to be on my feet and to hear and to do and to be. As long as I can keep that, I'm not unhappy. How about you? Oh, I'd like to have more energy. Yeah, I'd like to have more energy, too. But you tell me you worry because you don't know whether you're making sense or not. Yeah, that's right. I can't tell. Was there a time in your life when you could tell? Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Obviously, I never, I didn't have the touch of it. But I think it's the age that's creating the problem. And I don't know why. What difference does it make? But it's getting so that I can see that I'm not getting as much as I had before. It's just closing in more and more and more. Are you afraid it'll close in too much? I don't think it'll close in completely, but it'll slow things down completely. Can't tell. Hmm. But it could turn itself around. If it levels out, oh my. Oh, God glorious. Poor sister, when I come to lie in your Most of the time, at this point, most of the time, I think Greg has a pretty realistic view of his mother's of his mother's abilities. But it's hard to believe that one of your parents, as a capable person, is turning into a person who is not capable. And I think there were there were times when he probably didn't think he was being impatient, but he was he was a little bit too enthusiastic about reminding her that she really did know this person or that person or he she really did know where she lived or whatever i've offered advice about you know i think that you need to loosen up on marge when she's tired don't try to convince her that she remembers anything you know we'll just try to be reassuring that everything's going to be all right you know don't try to reassure her that she really does know where she lives because she cannot recall it it is not with her it's lost for today Together from the cradle to the grave Died and were reborn and left mysteriously safe What would you like to do? Me? <laughs> would you like to go on and on? Would you like to get married? Would you like to... I am married. you married now? Who? Bob. Oh, oh, Bob. I forgot about that. 
I forget that men and women are changing things. Mm-hmm. You may not see me tomorrow. You may not see me tomorrow. Most of the time now, I really can't figure out who she's talking about. But when she really starts to get down to the point where she's talking about somebody that's really been bugging her, we know if the someone who's really been bugging her is a she, it's her mother. And if the someone that she's been talking about that's been really bugging her is a he, we know it's her late husband. Earl. Where's my friend? Which one? The boy. There's me. And you. And Bob. Is there another one? There was another one, but he didn't show up. Oh, my word. Well, what can we do here? <laughs> he was constantly moving everything. Well. So I just, I just walked away. Well. He wasn't my friend, I can tell you. Oh, 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 well then we don't need him here. No, we don't need him. Oh, here it was someone I thought you were missing. No, no, I was glad to get rid of him. Oh. That would oh, Earl, you're thinking of Earl. No, Earl, I haven't seen Earl for years. Well, well that's because he died. I knew it. But I think that's who you're thinking of. Well, somebody told me he died, so mm-hmm. I let, let that go. Uh-huh. <laughs> Everybody's died. I know. I'm still alive. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Am I is that much older? You're very old. Am I? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I don't know how old I am. Well, do you want to know? Yeah. You're 91. Oh! <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> so much for drama. Yesterday we went to the Messiah together. So I got into doing this thing with my mother where we would bump hips or we'd lean into one another with the music. You know, we held hands and we'd we'd move our hands together. And the thing about dementia, you can feel like, what am I going to do with this person? Because we can't really carry on a conversation. Or you can find ways to interact with somebody where... There's no vestige of dementia because what you're sharing, you're experiencing in exactly the same way. There's some places where the music builds incrementally and it continues building and it continues building and it continues building. It's like a thunderstorm gathering. You're working up to the point where finally the thunder crashes and there's lightning and the deluge begins. You know, you're at that point where it lets loose. And when the moment came, when, when the full, when the glory and power of the Lord was revealed in by this swelling chorus, at that moment, she she shouted, "Crack!" <laughs> because she was right there with me. For about a year now, she has started telling me that she loves me, and she's starting telling Greg that she loves him. And it occurred to me when she started doing this that that was a little unusual. So I asked Greg, and he said she's never said I love you in his entire life. That's new for her, and I think it's a wonderful way to progress at the end of your life. If you've got to make a change at the end of your life, learning how to say I love you is a damn good place to be. You're going to drop me off out here? Yeah, at your place. At my place? Yeah. Oh, at home? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That isn't too bad, isn't it? Well, I hope not. No. Maybe you could come to my house, but it isn't there. I don't have a house. <laughs> <laughs> well, your apartment is where we're going to take you. Oh, to my apartment? Yeah. Was there an apartment there? Yeah. Huh. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's where you live. Now? Yeah. When I get there? Yeah. And I'll I'll be living in that? Yeah. I'll be done. Okay. I'll probably live till 90. You're 91. I'm 91? Holy mackerel. You'll have to put me to bed. <laughs> well, that's where we're headed next. <laughs> yeah, you, have to, you can put me in the bed and, and throw the dirt on me. Well, not the dirt, dear, just the blanket. <laughs> well, I love the whole thing. Oh, good. And I love you, and I love... But there's not very many people that I do love. So I'm lucky. Yeah. Well, I liked you when you were when I hardly knew you. Oh, good. 
Yeah, didn't you realize that? that oh, I, yeah. I figured you liked me right away. Yeah, I did. Completely. I just I took one look at you, and I listened to you, and I, I thought, hmm, a real man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're a hoot, Marjorie. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't care what my mother's state is. I don't care what her mental capacity is. I don't care whether she knows who I am or not by name. I can't imagine my relationship with my mother being any better at any point in my life than it is right now. There's no loss here. After the Forgetting was produced by Erica Heilman for Vermont Folklife Center Media. You can hear a longer version of this story and a longer version of Lynn and Doug Nadeau's story, too, at transom.org. You've been listening to Hearing Voices. I'm Larry Massett. Our website is hearingvoices.com. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Hepperman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Darham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is hearingvoices.com.